welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. Today we're talking about Tina Michelle Fontaine. Tina was born on New Year's Day in 1999. She was 15 years old when she was found in the Red River wrapped in a duvet cover and weighted down with rocks. That was in 2014. At the time of her death, she was under legal guardianship of a Department of Child and Family Services. She was a ward of the Manitoba government. Tina had needed protection and guardianship since birth. She had a short and brutal life. Tina had been in Winnipeg to reconnect with her mom, Valentina. Valentina was from Bloodvein First Nation. Valentina was young. Valentina was 17 when Tina was born, and that was her second child. A few years earlier, in 1992, Valentina herself had become a permanent ward of the Child and Family Services. She was 10 years old when that happened. Valentina also had a traumatic childhood. In her own childhood, Valentina described being sexually exploited at the age of 12 in her community. What this means is that Tina's mother, Valentina, was being paid for sex when she herself was just a child. Valentina would then use that money to buy alcohol. That's why she wanted to get the hell out of her reserve. In 1994, Valentina met the man who would be the father of Tina. His name was Eugene. Eugene was much older than Valentina. In fact, he was a 23-year-old adult at the time they met, and she was a 12-year-old child under the care of a Canadian-mandated family service agency. According to agency notes, Valentina would run away from foster placements and stay at his place. It was a sexual relationship. Soon, Valentina moved in with the man who would eventually become Tina's father. Who was Tina's father? His name was Eugene. When he was 12, he left Saging First Nation to live in Winnipeg. Eugene himself struggled with addiction. When he was with Valentina, he was violent. They separated, but he needed help raising his kids. He couldn't do it on his own. And Valentina was out of the kids' lives at this point. So Eugene begged the local community grandmother, Thelma, for help. Although initially reluctant, Thelma agreed to raise Tina Fontaine and her sister, Sarah. For a few years, things were pretty good. Thelma and her husband ran a tight ship, and Tina thrived at school. But then came horrific news on Halloween in 2011. Eugene's body was found tied up behind a shed on the reserve. He had been beaten and kicked in the head and left for dead by two so-called friends that he had been binge drinking and partying with for several days. Eugene was 41 years old when he was killed. Tina's father was brutally murdered when she was just 12 years old. Her family described this as the time when her world fell apart. Within three years of her father's murder, Tina had run away, become sexually exploited, killed, and then disposed of into the Red River. What happened the day she died? It's called falling through the cracks, which means that the support system a person should have in her life failed. When your life is rubble, there are a lot of cracks. How does this happen in a civilized society? What about quality control at the various levels of interactions with her once she was in the system, so to speak? Around the world and all throughout history, parents are ideally the primary support system, then perhaps extended family. This is common throughout the world. Family helps family. 
it's not unusual to be raised by extended relatives. So to know about Tina is also to know about her family. Tina was from Saging First Nation. Saging First Nation is about 100 kilometers north of Winnipeg. It is also known as Fort Alexander. In 1871, the Anishinaabe people who lived near the place called Fort Alexander signed onto Treaty Number no. 1. Saging First Nation is included in three separate treaty territories. In English, Saging translates into Mouth of the River. Saging is where the Winnipeg River flows into Lake Winnipeg. To put it another way, Saging is the mouth of the Winnipeg River. In 1792, the Northwest Company built a trading post near the mouth of the river that they called Bas de la Riviere. The HBC also built a fort in that area in that year. In 1807, after the merger of the Northwest Company and the Hudson Bay Company, Fort Alexander was built at the mouth of the Winnipeg River. The fort was named after Alexander Mackay, a partner with the Northwest Company. But before the HBC erected their fort, French explorer La Verangerie had built a fort nearby called Fort Maurepas. That was in the mid-1700s. But the Anishinaabe have a history at Saging that goes back even further. For a long time, this area has been used for obtaining a livelihood. Even ancient copper artifacts have been found in the Saging area. Tina's mother, Valentina Duck, was from Bloodvane First Nation, which is further north along the eastern shore of Lake Winnipeg at the mouth of the Bloodvane River. Bloodvane First Nation has no direct road access. A ferry has to be taken to get across the river. Bloodvane could be described as a dysfunctional community. It has a lot of violence. There are murders and arsons that seem to be acts of revenge between community members. The community itself is not very big. The on-reserve population is about 1,200 people. A lot of these people are related or distantly related to each other. They are Anishinaabe people from the shores of Lake Winnipeg. Where does this violence come from? Why is there so much hurt in these communities? There wasn't always violence like this. There is no evidence of such widespread violence within communities in early European written records. Even into the early 1900s, ethnographers describing the so-called primitive lifestyle of the Anishinaabe far from European-style civilization make no mention of widespread lateral violence. Indeed, the opposite is often the case. Anishinaabe people were slow to adopt the ways of the West, relying instead on magical spells rather than physical violence against rivals. So what happened? As I mentioned, in 1905, an Indian residential school was established at Fort Alexander. The damage done by this institution to Tina Fontaine's family and, moreover, her communities of Sagging and Bloodvane is what I'm about to describe. If you're squeamish, it may get graphic. The Indian residential schools were not good places. Children, some as young as four or five, were physically, sexually, and psychologically abused there. Children had to attend these schools, by law, for many years. Some children were able to live through the years of abuse and graduate. Many children tried to run away multiple times. 
Many children died at these government-funded and church-run brainwashing and conversion facilities. Children were used for labor in the fields and throughout the schools. Children caught speaking their native language were physically punished. They might have a pin or sewing needle pushed through their tongues. Different schools and staff had different kinks and perversions. Indian residential schools were a way for the government to destroy the family unit and force native people to think and act like Europeans. Sexual abuse was rampant. And by rampant, I mean the clergy and staff fucked and sucked little boys and girls in the name of Jesus repeatedly and unabashedly for decades. That's why we call people who lived through these hell holes survivors. Indeed, the unnatural acts committed at these so-called schools have recently been recognized as being severely damaging to the former students by the Canadian judiciary. That's why there have been legal settlements regarding residential schools. The schools weren't set up for just reading and writing, but also raping and pillaging. There was a handmade electric chair used to torture children at one school, as well as nutrition experiments conducted on unknowing children at other schools. In the nutrition experiments, children were given vitamins instead of food just to see what would happen. If children did run away, and many tried, if they were caught, they were brought back and humiliated and subjected to corporal punishment. Some children died trying to get away from residential school. Assembly of First Nations leader Phil Fontaine attended an Indian residential school. In 1990, he spoke out about the abuses he was subjected to at such a school. The school he attended was Fort Alexander, the same Indian residential school that Tina Fontaine's grandparents had been forced to attend. Fontaine family members also attended the Assiniboia residential school in Winnipeg, Manitoba. On the website, Where Are the Children?, you can view testimonies of residential school survivors. One such survivor, Mabel Harry Fontaine, also attended Fort Alexander Residential School. She was there in the 1950s. She described Fort Alexander as being like a jail. The nuns were severe and punishing, but that's not all that happened there. His name was Brother Lacoste. He was bald. And he had a wart somewhere here or there. And he was a pig. He was a kukush. But he always had lots of candy. That's how he got me. Candy was very, very scarce there. Maybe two, three times a year we had it. And he had candy all the time. And his big, long, gone pockets. He'd come in that playroom there and his hands in his pockets. That's how he got me to go close to him and sit on his lap. While he played with me, where his hands are not supposed to be, on my arse, on my vagina. He was gross, he was a fat, fat, dysfunctional human being.
and he did that to lots of little girls. He took my virginity with his finger of all things. Later on in life when I start going with boys, I was wondering, because after you get to learn about that, like my friends or or boys. Did you get your cherry bust yet? What the fuck is that? <laughs> I didn't know what that was. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> what does that mean? Meanwhile, I thought, uh, and then I heard the word virgin. Well, I thought I was a virgin. When I finally start going out and we only want blood when I had sex. That means no blood, no show blood when I had sex for the very first time. Then I got uh, angry, I guess, and hurt and what the hell, you know? What the hell's going on? I didn't understand. Back then, we are so innocent. <coughs> you know, I don't, I don't know how long, I forget how many sessions I've been with Mel and Shirley. <coughs> Every time I go, I, something comes out of my mouth, something pops in my brain, all this reverts back to the boarding school. Never at home. Never. I was protected there. I was taken from there. Used, abused, called down. That calling down is a big thing. Should never call little ones down because they'll believe it. I believed it. I know what I'm capable of, but there's that fear. I don't do it. I had all this training, okay? I, like I was, I had high marks, I passed every time, and when it came right down to, to showing what I learned, I couldn't do it because uh, I was told I was stupid, and I would never amount to anything. So it affects me, that, in answer to your question, about how it affects me now. And my kids, it shows all my kids. Like they're, they're drug addicts, um, alcoholics. My baby was alcoholic. He started drinking when he was 12 years old. And here I was too, screwing up my own life, screwing up my children's lives. People telling, don't blame yourself for your baby hanging himself, taking his own life. 
Don't, don't tell me not to blame myself. At Fort Alexander, if you wet the bed, which was common, probably because of the child abuse, you were made to parade around with the dirty sheet over your head in front of everyone else. Remember that this was being conducted by Catholic nuns. The purpose of this shaming exercise was to dehumanize the child, because they weren't just there to teach. Remember Duncan Campbell Scott's infamous words, Kill the Indian to save the child. What the schools did was to condition the behaviors of thousands of children through severe abuse aimed specifically at destroying any overt indigenous societal traits. In other words, it was a widespread attempt by the government via church-operated schools to commit cultural genocide. If you don't believe me, rewind what you just heard. They were not nice places. So when these children grew into adults, that is, if they survived the school itself, Many of them had psychological problems, because many of these residential school survivors themselves didn't receive appropriate care after being separated from their families and had been severely abused when they themselves became parents. And when they themselves became parents, many didn't have appropriate parenting skills, nor did they have an abundance of family support because their brothers, sisters, and cousins were going through the same trauma. This then became the social environment under which the 60s scoop began. But that's a different story. Tina Fontaine died in August of 2014. Her father, born in the early 1970s, was a de facto pedophile with violent tendencies who coped with life through alcohol and drugs. He met his end through violence. Who were his parents? It seems overly simplistic to say, but Tina did not have an appropriate father figure in her life. Although she had an adopted grandfather, her biological father's influence in her short life was apparent. Tina's life reflected the addictions in the lives of her parents and grandparents. Tina's death was considered suspicious by the medical examiner, but the doctor stopped short of declaring the death as a homicide. Winnipeg police had scant evidence to go on, but forensic evidence like the knots tied in the duvet and the rocks found inside the duvet bundle indicate that Tina's body was deliberately weighed down to be hidden. The police eventually did nab someone for Tina's death, a man named Raymond Cormier, who proclaimed his own innocence. Cormier was tried in a court of law for the death of Tina Fontaine. The criminal trial for Tina's death took several years and ended in March of 2018. Cormier was found not guilty. But if Raymond Cormier didn't kill Tina Fontaine, then who did? The estimates of the number of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada range between 1,200 and 4,000. That's based on data collected since about 1980. And, despite the myth, they are not all committed by men they knew. Many of the murdered indigenous women were killed by people they barely knew. The numbers aren't accurate because record-keeping hasn't been accurate. That in itself is another story. Ultimately, the treatment of women worldwide is generally reprehensible, 
and particularly for Native women in Canada, fatal. Tina didn't need government intervention. What she needed was an actual safe place where it felt like home. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.